Hello, and welcome to this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield College in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast will share these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy these stories. My name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Bertoni Faustin. We're at Abbey Creek Vineyard in North Plains. It's June 4th, 2018. And Bertoni, we're going to start you off by asking you, why wine? Why wine? Wow. There's a, uh, uh, I guess it's a long story, you know, to get there. Um, but I've, I've streamlined it a bit. Um, <laughs> mine is a story of part tragedy and part opportunity. Um, originally from New York City, pa- parents are from Haiti, you know, prior to that. Um, kind of lived that traditional immigrant life, you know, parents come, you know, you have kids, kids do better to parents, mm-hmm. etc. Um, but the, the biggest story is, is the legacy, you know, of, of those families, which is, is kind of ironic. You, you don't have the conversations growing up, you know, and, and now, you know, as a, as a grown up, as a grown man, um, I'm asking those, what was that defining moment that made them leave sure. their homeland as adults? You know, it just, it, it had to be a very shitty situation because you think about yourself, you know, what would uh, move you to be like, all right, that's it, we're packing up, right. we're going to a country where we don't speak the language, don't have a high school degree, you know, for the, the, a better life, you know? So um, in uh, 2007, so I've been here since 99, you know, work hours, stuff. I was on my way to California uh, and it never happened. I got a job at OHSU. I was an anesthesia technician. That's kind of what got me from the East Coast to the West Coast. Ended up meeting my wife here, family, etc. But in 2007, my dad passed. And um, it was one of those moments of, you know, reassessing your life, your happiness. Mm-hmm. I say uh, tragedy evokes change. Um, and it's up to us, you know, what that change is going to be. Um, but I, I quit my day job. You know, it was one of those, it, it forced me to, to think about, you know, what am I really doing? You know, what is my happiness? And like I said, I, I go back to my dad's story. You know, he came to the States in 69, sent for my mom and the other two kids, um, you know, started working at a place, you know, like a factory or whatever. Um, but he needed to be successful in spite of. You know, um, the white folks, they called them boat people, mm-hmm. you know, because he, he came over on the ship back in the day. Um, black Americans called him Uncle Tom, you know, because he was just grinding, doing his thing, taking care of his family. But even uh, his fellow Haitians, they both shunned him uh, here and abroad because they felt that he made it and wasn't giving back. You know, so since day one, my dad had to just own who he was and do his own thing. Um, and that was where I was feeling maybe my life wasn't, doing justice to that legacy you know so that's why i I quit my day job um the in-laws at the moment had about five-ish acres of of grapes that they planted uh, in the west hills of portland which is there's no vineyards in the west hills of portland (laughs) but um for farm deferral uh, you know, in Oregon, you know, you have any piece of property, you plant something in order to call it a farm to get some tax breaks. Um, they had the Southern Exposure, a, a consultant from OSU said, plant grapes, you know, and then that's what they did. Uh, fruit was sold a few years, but uh, no one ever did anything with it. That probably was about 15 years that the vineyard hadn't been in production, you know, for anything. And I was looking around one day and I said, you know what, I'm going to go ahead and make wine. 
Uh, I didn't even drink prior <laughs> to it either. Uh, so the, the first part is the tragedy, dad passing, you just want to do something different and meaningful. And the second was the opportunity that, you know, it was like, oh, there's a vineyard here. Why don't I go ahead and make wine? You know, uh, the way I was thinking is worst case, I'll make raisins and shit, you know, <laughs> if it doesn't work out, you know, kind of thing. So early on, and probably still now, there was no passion for wine. Um, I think there's a lot of passionate broke winemakers out there. You know the, you know the wine uh, term, right? In order to make a small fortune, you start with a large one. Um, but I'm from Brooklyn, so if it doesn't make dollars, it doesn't make sense you know, <laughs> at the end of the day. So even me starting into the industry, um, I attempted to follow the route, you know, and, and a lot of the traditional route is, is part of what um, kept me behind. Oh, I feel like, you know, the whole idea, you got to have an estate vineyard. You know, I planted another seven acres. You know, now I've got about 12, 13 acres, too many. You know, um, that to me, it's a lose-lose situation, you know, kind of thing. Um, but that whole idea and romance of the industry just didn't make any sense to me you know, starting on. Uh, uh, so early on, I just started to do things my way. You know, that's kind of uh, how I got into the wine industry or, or why wine sure. to, your, to your first question, you know, so, yeah. So was there a moment for you when you said you just kind of decided to make wine, was there a, a realization as to what that was going to entail when you decided, I got grapes, I'm just gonna learn how to make wine? Or like, at what point did you realize what kind of challenge that was gonna be? Um, it, it never had, I never had that kind of moment. Um, and again, I, 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 um, I accompanied that to, you know, my past, you know, and the way, you know, my family did things. And it was kind of a, a subliminal passed on. It's almost like, a, you know, like what they call it, instinct. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I didn't think about those challenges or whatever because it didn't matter. You know, I, had, I was at that point where I said, this is what I'm going to do. You know, so what, I mean, everything has challenges, right? You know, and again, especially at that moment feeling, you know, I was living my life safe. You know, um, those challenges didn't matter. It didn't matter what it was. This was my moment to say fuck it and just jump out there and, you know, throw caution to the wind. The crazy day I did, the better, you know, it was going to be for me. So, um, yeah, no, I, I never really had that wow, this is going to be challenging moments. And don't get me wrong, you know, there was a lot of, you know, scary moments at times, you know, like what am I really getting into, things like that, but never to the point of anything to make me to stop, you know, kind of thing, so, yeah. How did you go about learning the trade once you decided? Um, we had a family friend, uh, he's actually, um, one of the Volsteks. Oh, really? You know, yeah. Okno family. Okno, yeah. He's a, a baby cousin to the, they're like the mafia and shit. You know, you can't talk trash about the Volsteks <laughs> in Oregon. Uh, somebody's family somewhere. But um, he was just that sort of instigator, you know, like, yeah, go ahead and do it, you know. And so I guess kind of the comfort and confidence in the fact of having someone, you know, whose family lineage, the pioneers uh, in the industry saying, yeah, go ahead and do it. It's, you know, why not? You know, and so that kind of gave me that early validation, like, you know, sure, I'll just go ahead and, and jump on in, both hands, both feet, you know, and, and kind of make this happen. Yeah. Did you do any kind of technical training or was it all just kind of hands-on learning as you go? 
90% was hands-on learning as you go. Um, I did three months at Shemekita. <laughs> I mean, it's like, okay, that's a wine college, I go. I'm allergic to school. You know, I, I've been to a lot of school. It's just, it was never my thing. Um, if you know any Caribbean families, uh, if you're not a doctor, lawyer, engineer, you're a failure to the family. So all of my life, I've always been battling this. I go to school for two to three years, and then it's like, no, I want to do me. And <laughs> I go to school for another three years, you know, so. Um, Shemekita only lasted three months, thankfully. I was driving there every day, you know. Um, but no, uh, my first vintage was done at Helvetia Vineyards, which was uh, right around the corner. Um, <laughs> I'll say this on record anyway, it doesn't matter. Um, Helvetia taught me what not to do, <laughs> personally. You know, I made my first vintage, got the hell out of there. But um, there was a winemaker from David Hill, Jason Bull, was the consultant. Mm -hmm. And uh, he was sort of my mentor without knowing he was my mentor. You know, because I'd be there, you know, late at night doing cellar rat stuff, and he'd come in and just kind of follow him around. and you know, read his notes after he puts everything in the books. You know, so that's kind of where, you know, learning the craft, you know, kind of that hands-on. Um, and even still to this day, this is year 10 for me, actually. Um, my best is my next, you know? Um, so I'm always, I've never, I never feel like I know it all or I have it all. I'm always trying to do something better or, or hone that craft a little bit more, you know, as I, you know, keep going into this industry. Yeah. Do you have a favorite part of the of the job? Is there something that, that makes you the happiest? Mm. A little bit of each stage. Yeah. You know, uh, obviously, um, you've been around vineyards that you got from March to October, and so much goes on. You know, it's it's amazing. You know, um, when you look at it, you know, from you, you you do your winter pruning, and there's nothing. It's bare. And then all of a sudden, you get shoots, and then now they're growing, growing. You know, so each one of those stages, you know, when you get bud break, ah, oh, it's great, and then. You know, you get behind because everything is happening too fast, you know, and then you get bloom. Great, you know, those are those little stages where, okay, I didn't fuck it up. You know, it's like, okay, we're still going, you know, then Verasion and all of that, you know, it start happening. So a little bit of all of those, um, and same with harvest. I think um, the, the actual harvest crush period, um, everybody is kind of in that same, you know, space, uh, regardless how big, small you are, we're all, at that same moment equal, mm -hmm. you know, for instance, uh, you know, so that's kind of a, a, a great feeling for the first couple of days. And then you're like, how, much we, how long are we still going, you know, kind of things. Um, so, so those are kind of those love moments, you know, um, in between there's all of the, the stress moments, you know, you don't want to ruin the batch, it's still there, bottling, all of that has its, but uh, those are really those true, you know, wow, you know, you remember that, all right, this is why I decided to do this because of this feeling here. What were some of the, we talked about challenges a little bit earlier. You start, decided you had, you decided to start a winery. You said you're near 10 now. So finding a space, getting all the equipment, learning, you know, what were some of the challenges you saw there? And like, how did you, when did you feel like you had it kind of down? Gotcha. Um, well, the first challenge was, you know, we've got, I've got 50 acres over on Germantown Road and, you know, we've been growing five to six acres since 81. You know, I planted some more vineyard, you know, back in 2010, another seven acres, um, but we couldn't make wine on site. Uh, the, uh, the county, I'm in Multnomah County. Uh, zoning, uh, 
urban growth boundary, rural reserves, uh, you name it. Uh, there was 40 year moratorium. There was all kinds of reasons why I couldn't. And then again, you know, early on trying to follow the, the regular model, you have your vineyard, you wanna, you know, create your tasting room right where you're at. You know, so those were the biggest like, okay, so what am I gonna do if I can't do this on site? I've got a $100,000 garage <laughs> that was supposed to be the winery until the, the county is like, you can't make wine here. It's like, put our hammers down, everybody stop working, you know, so, so things like that were the, were the biggest pain in the ass, you know, like, okay, what's next? You know, but again, fortunately, at the time of my life where, you know, tragedy, China, you know, sort of, you know, saying it doesn't matter, I'm going to keep pushing forward sort of feelings, um, you know, Monoma County's like, you can't make wine here. It's like, all right, I can't make wine here. Now what? You know, what are we going to do next? Uh, then I started looking at co-op spaces, you know, like the Carlton Winemaker Studio, mm -hmm. things like that. Um, but this just didn't fit. The, the idea didn't fit for me. Uh, you know how it is when you have roommates. You know, <laughs> sounds good at first, but at the end of the day, like, why are you in the kitchen when I'm in the kitchen? You know, shit like that. So, um, so I just started again trying to find different ways in order to do, you know, uh, do my craft. And uh, I found North Plains, which was uh, 15 minutes away from the house. Um, and this was back in 2012 when I, I finally found North Plains. Small, it's your quintessential uh, Coors Light kind of town. There's a bar for every church and a church for every bar. We've got four of them. Um, but I was like, you know, this is going to have to be the spot. I was able to afford a building, you know, because it's not wine country. It's not Carlton, Newburgh, Dundee. Um, I'm the hottest thing in town. I'm right off the freeway, you know. So every time there was this challenge, there was this blessing on the tail end, you know, early on, you know, like most challenges in life, you, you feel like, you know, they say, well, now what? Mm -hmm. You know, and you don't realize, okay, there's gotta be that yang to that, you know, something positive turns it. And, and that's all I kept looking at. Each time there was a challenge, okay, now how can we parlay this into something positive to keep going? Because if not, we might as well just stop, right? You know, kind of idea. So um, those were the, the biggest challenges and I think challenges that a lot of people in the industry face, you know, cash flow, number one one you know so I still had to have a day job you know early on like like most people but it wasn't your typical um, I had a, I got a job at sake one <laughs> you know the world's largest American operated sake burger is in Forest Grove you know very big small company um, 20 employees but that's production tasting room sure. etc so um, again I didn't want to work in another winery while I'm trying to you know, create mine. Um, so again, those were positive, you know, uh, moments for me in order to kind of get to where I was going and, and my success here. It's a lot of alcohol work for someone who didn't drink before you started. Indeed. Right? And <laughs> honestly, I still don't drink. <laughs> I obviously taste, sure. you know, um, but yeah, no, I, I'm usually content with, you know, a couple of ounces or something or whatever. You know, I can taste, you know, 20, 30 barrels in a day, you know, but still, uh, yeah, I never had that point of I need to have a drink. Sure. You know, I'll nurse a beer for like three days, you know, <laughs> so it's just kind of funny. But. So this is a, obviously talking about tough industry on on relationships, families. Uh, obviously, your wife's family had the acreage to start. Correct. What was her response when you wanted to kind of quit your day job and become a winemaker? Well, uh, just again from my history, my background, in the sense of how I 
I worked or how I did things. Uh, I, money is just money. Again, coming from New York City, families, Haitian, you know, et cetera, you got this kind of hustle grind, you know, I'll make money. You know, so money was never the only reason why I needed to do something. And, you know, I've been successful at every position in life, you know, and it's not like, this is my goal, I want to go become, you know, vice president. You know, no, it's just the way my work ethic and, and how I did things, you know, I always excelled, you know. So um, she was very supportive and, you know, in the sense of, okay, sure, go ahead and do it. Because she knew I was going to make something out of it. You know, uh, her parents were different, you know, and just like everybody else, because again, because what is this, the idea of the industry paints, right? Mm -hmm. You know, it's this whole uh, exclusion model where if you're not pedigreed, if you haven't traveled the world, world if you haven't done XYZ you'll never be successful in this you know sort of industry so it's kind of funny I, I look at it you know now you know and it, so but yeah no it was it was easy in that sense as for you know my wife's side so you kind of the support oh, so you kind of appear off the off the beaten path a little bit so how did you go making a name for yourself in the industry being in North Plains um, the working at Sake One was actually one of the best things really? ever. Um, the sake industry is one of those with a reputation, right? Most people think you go to a restaurant, you order sake, it's hot. Uh, you either shoot it as a shot or a sake bomb. You know, so now I was in this place of premium chill sake where I had to educate folks, mm -hmm. you know, on how to enjoy this beverage or what it's like. Um, you still may not have liked it when you left, but you knew that they were different sake, etc. And as I mentioned, Sake One being a very big, small company, you know, over 100,000 cases a year, they sell sake back to Japan. I mean, that's, that's amazing. Um, but they needed a face at that point, you know, and uh, that was me. Uh, and, you know, talk about, you know, not being the norm, sake brewery in Forest Grove, and there's a black guy in the tasting room when you come in, you know. So I always excel at those kind of moments, you know, and being odd man out. Uh, so that gave me that confidence to, you know, so it put me on a bigger stage working for Sake One while I was starting my label. So by the time I left in 2012, it didn't matter, you know. I, I took most of their customers with me. Cause, you know, when we do the big shows, I'm the sake guy. You know, everybody knows Bertoni. You know, so kind of thing. So, um, again, I had the confidence to to do whatever. I could sell sake in Oregon. I can make some damn wine. That, that's pretty much easy, you know. And and again, like I said, uh, those real serious moments though is. Um, what keeps me keeps me pushing or going forward is the thinking of my dad. Mm -hmm. You know, in '69, to be able to do what he did, you know, um, I can make wine. You know, there's no way um, anything or any challenge in my life is going to be greater than, you know, what my family went through personally back in the day. You know, <laughs> so that was always my, you know, push for success. So we'll talk about your documentary in a mm -hmm. second, but let's talk about just being a minority in the industry, uh, in, a, in a really white industry, in a really white place to live. What was the reception like for you? What did you, what, uh, how, how were you received? What kind of adjustments did you make? How did it all go? Well, well early on, um, customers would come in and you know, you, you're doing your thing and they're like, well, who's the winemaker? And you say, I say me, and they're like, <laughs> You know, they kind of give you that, you know, the dog head sideways, like, you know, kind of feeling. Then you talk and you're talking, but you don't have a vineyard, do you? Yeah, I do. And 
<laughs> you know, the same kind of thing. Well, you must have gone to UC Davis. Uh, no, I kind of, you know, learned on, you know, hands on. And, and it just got old, you know, that same. And the thing is, you got it from peers as well, mm -hmm. you know, at the wine shows or whatever, you know, the principals were there, you know, owners and, you know, and, and the same kind of thing. Everyone's, someone's like trying to validate you, you know, well, why are you here? Or how long have you been working for Abbey Creek? Fuck you, I own Abbey Creek. You know, it's just stuff like that. It, uh, it was, it, it gets under your skin after, you know, um, a, a matter of time, you know, and it shit was just getting old, you know, so I felt that, um, that everyday pressure of having to validate, mm -hmm. you know. Uh, but it, again, I still kept doing what I did. Um, I never really wanted to be different. I just wanted to make wine, you know, and this is me, this is what I'm doing, you know, what kind of thing. Um, even early on with the, you know, the wine industry is all about awards and medals. Mm -hmm. I did that up until 2013. And um, it was at the, I know the exact moment when I was like, okay, this is not for me, this is bullshit at the end of the day. I was at the McMinnville Sip. I uh, got a gold medal for one of our wines. And obviously everybody wanted to try that. It was amazing, this and that. And you know, if you've been on the, at a show for three days, it gets boring some moments. So I kept moving the medal. <laughs> and people loved everything that had the medal on. You know, and, and then again, it was one of those, you know what? I mean, the industry is all about pitch, marketing, you know, um, you make solid wine, no flaws, you know, and at the end of the day, you can sell whatever, you know, and, and uh, that was another turning moment on the, uh, I'm just going to do me mm -hmm. um, at the end of the day, because there's no perfect wine on paper, you know. Um, once I realized that everyone wasn't going to be my customer, that gave me kind of the freedom, you know, so it didn't matter if anybody cared where I thought I was the winemaker or not, et cetera. Um, they just weren't my customer and it, it didn't affect me anymore. You know, I never had those challenges or the feelings of, okay, this is what I need to do so people can, you know, know me as the winemaker. Mm -hmm. um, and, and it's just kind of funny, uh, even my outfit, the overalls, I purposely, you know, intentionally wear them everywhere. You know, black tie events, all of that, because of that whole, you know, what is a winemaker supposed to look like, you know, uh, sort of uh, thing that I was going through. Um, I wore, there was a Jesse Jackson event, you know, black tie. They didn't say nothing about overalls. <laughs> I had a black tie and my button down, you know, so um, I figured, you know what, if I want people to look at me different or sit it, I'm just going to have to act different you know, and be different and do different, you know, with a hip-hop winery, you know, things like that, you know, so, and if you come into my space, there's pictures of me all over the place as well, to, to force them, you know, to, yeah, this is me, this is my house, this is how we do, and um, that's how the documentary came to be. Mm -hmm. 2015, you know, Oregon was celebrating 50 years of winemaking, And all of the press, emails, Facebook, whatever coming out was, you know, all about the pioneers. I think it was David Dinalette on the cover and all of that, which is all amazing and great. We need to know our past and history. Um, but one of my issues with the wine industry is that's where we stay and get stuck on. You know, no one was talking about the future. No one was looking at the future. Um, and for me, now this is seven years for me in the industry. I'm still open, you know, and we're doing okay. 
Um, but that day I was like, you know what? I'm gonna go ahead and create my own documentary to, to share my story, since no one else was gonna do it for me. Um, there's something about being in the vineyard and doing mundane, you know, sort of tasks. That's where all my creative, you know, stuff comes from. You look up at the row, you're like, all right, I'm not gonna be done with this ever. You know, you see all of the extra rows behind. But I was out there and I was like, I'm gonna go ahead and just make my own documentary. Yeah, easy. You know, yeah, you know, same thing. Like I said, I'm gonna just make wine in, in 2007. Um, but that's kind of what, you know, the whole culmination of people judging and trying to validate, and then the history, um, uh, the anniversary, um, all of those things were, you know, those uh, kind of challenges in the sense of, or things that made me feel like, you know, the reception of me in the industry. So um, I'm a strong believer of, you know, being the change that I want to see. No one's going to do it for me, you know, so why not go ahead and just create that and make it happen? So what was the next step after you decided to do it? So I was like, okay, now I need to check in with few key people to talk me out of this. <laughs> it sounded good on paper, you know. You in the sun, you're delirious, it's hot. I'm gonna make a movie, you know. Uh, first call was to uh, Dewey Weddington, who was the, um, I knew him previously from Sake One. He was VP of marketing. Um, he was, you know, deep in the wine you know, arena, worked at Cooper Mountain, all of that. Um, and we have become, you know, close friends. And I was like, hey Dewey, this is what I'm thinking. And he was like, great, I'm on board. Like shit, you know? <laughs> and it just kept happening, you know, each person. Um, and so then it came, you know, I, I don't know nothing about making movies, you know, what am I gonna do? Um, but my director, uh, Jerry Bell Jr., um, I had met him, you know, through some uh, mutual customers at Sake One. I knew he was an actor. Um, I, would, like, I think I just saw him on an Allstate commercial. Mm -hmm. You know, so I was like, all right, let me call his brother up. You know, to uh, at least he can put me in the right direction. Uh, unbeknownst to me, he had left, he was an engineer at Intel, you know, and had left Intel two years prior to pursue his career in acting and directing and movie making. You know, so um, we created a production company. And that was kind of the, uh, you know, uh, little boy band that we created in order to <laughs> let's make this movie kind of happen. Um, and, and again, like I said, all of these things sort of just happen they fall into place, you know, and I was like, okay, I got to do this as a director, let him do that, you know, and then I just had a, a, a team of folks, photographers and things like that, who once they caught on, they just wanted to be a part of this, you know, so, I mean, from me just, you know, making my own movie, my passion project, uh, it quickly turned into a movement, mm -hmm. you know, once people kept catching wind and, you know, um, it, it took it to that level where it is now today, so. How did you go about recruiting other people to be actually in the movie? Well, early on, I mean, this was just gonna be my story. You know, right. Belt Only Forster, Oregon's first black winemaker. Um, but again, uh, more of that, that hustle in me is like, all right, how can we make this bigger? You know, um, than just the black guy wine story. You know, and then I started thinking about minorities in the industry now, who can I tap into? Um, heard about Jesus, you know, uh, I think Jesus is actually the first Mexican winemaker out here doing his thing. Um, so it was really all about hustle, you know, and, and just the, I call it the okie doke, you know, uh, what looks better on paper at the end of the day? You know, me as a solo or me with a team. 
I've got more reach. I've got more, you know, uh, more different avenues that we can tap into. Uh, so we brought on Jesus, and then um, I had met Jared through that whole side of things. I didn't know there was any other black folks working in the industry. You know, he came in here one day, just happenstance, handing him a buddy, and uh, he's like, oh yeah, no, I, I work in the cellar at Argyle. You know, I was like, all right, black guy number two. <laughs> right. And then um, I kept seeing things about Andre, Andre Mack, um, but never really could pin it. It's like, is he Willamette Valley? Is he not? You know, and then after doing some investigation, found Andre on uh, Facebook, we linked up, you know, and his story, Andre lives in New York, but comes here every year, buys fruit, makes his wine at Union Wine Company, and then distributes all over. Um, national distribution, I think um, 40 states, 13 countries. I can't name five countries off the top of my head, and he's in 13 of them. And um, the, the real strength about Andre was, again, I didn't want people to be like, Oh, that's cute. Look at the little minority wine story with the small winemakers. Andre has reach. Andre's on this other scale, you know, so he gave, again, validation to yes, we're minorities and we can do it on a bigger scale, too. You know, he's from the restaurant sommelier background. You know, he's on the road 250 days out of the year. I mean, but that's what he enjoys. You know, so I felt we needed Andre as, as an anchor in that sense as well. And then um, the other angle was the we needed a woman. And then, you know, the LGBTQ side of things. Then we found Remy. She fits both, you know. Um, but on a, on a serious tip, you know, note, I mean, the dynamic that she brings in is when customers come into here, I'm black. You see that, you hear the music, whatever. You know, you either get over it sooner or what. But Remy, um, imagine that inner grief that you have to decide, do I out myself to every customer who asks, does your husband make wine? You know, and I felt there's that part of the story was going to connect with so many more people, you know, and, and that's what it's all about for me. It's like how many people in regular lives and stories can I connect with, you know, and um, that's how I, I put the, the squad together. You know, um, there was another winery that was going to be my woman and, uh, you know, lesbian side of things. Um, but early on, there was already a lot of headbutting, you know, um, I. Good and bad, I love to collaborate. I'm all about partnership and you know, I think the more we were better together at the end of the day, but it, it takes some core people to understand that we all have a role and your story is not better than my story or bigger. And uh, early on, you know, this is what was going on with these folks. So it was like, all right, I'm gonna have to cut you off the team. <laughs> you know, but again, cause I had this vision of, we're all gonna go out together and make this, you know, amazing you know, sort of story. We're already out here taking the risk and putting our brands on the line for it. So why not find people that you genuinely like and you can be around and then they get it, you know, sort of thing. So that's how uh, I put the squad together, you know. When you approached Jesus and Remy and, and Jared and, and Andre, what, were they initially excited to do it? Were they initially nervous? Um, everybody was c kind of excited. They were like, you know, yeah, you know, they, they started to, to mull it over. And, and, and what's interesting as well, um, and if you, you get to know me, you'll see, all of those guys are winemakers in the sense of they're passionate about the industry. I'm not, you know, um, I'm passionate about what wine affords me, the platform it gives me, um, the doors it opens, but 
you know, like Remy, she wanted to be a winemaker since eight. You know, Andre, same thing, Jesus, Jared, I, that's not me. You know, to me, this is just my hustle right now. And what's next? You know, sort of thing. Where is it going to take me to allow me? Um, so it was it was interesting, you know, again, us with all of these different dynamics, or at least me, you know, odd man out and everybody else in there. But everyone was excited, you know, about the idea of, of making this happening. You know, um, I still don't think, and even still today, I think they're excited, but they're still not as invested. You know, and that's just going to be one of those things that no one can ever be, you know, as invested as, as I am in this project because it's mine, you know, so, but. What did you hope to accomplish? What was your goal once you, once you got to the point where, okay, I'm actually going to do this? What was your goal at the end? The end goal and still right now is to change the perception of what you do with wine, without wine, what does a winemaker look like? Um, and, and how it's perceived. Uh, to me, I fault the industry. And then when I say industry, I mean marketing, you know, in the, in the whole, you can open up any wine enthusiast, whatever. What are the pictures, you know? Uh, white folks, hipsters in the field having a picnic and shit. That's not us, that's not me. That's, you're marketing to just this one small demographic. But what I want is I wanted to change that whole perception of what wine is or what wine can be. I'm still doing that today, you know, but, um, and it's again surreal seeing the people who agree or actually, you know, you, you move them and they're like, wow, you know, I, I never thought of it that way, mm -hmm. you know, so I, I'm all about creating that social change and uh, I know some people might say, well, it's just wine, I just want to be able to and drink it and enjoy it. Um, no. Life is all about being intentional in, in everything we do, you know, and um, I don't believe in, you know, I can be serious about this, but nah, it's just mine. Don't, I don't want to care what does uh, uh, somebody else posted that one time on, on Facebook on one of our, you know, advertisements or anything about the documentary. You know, what does it matter? The color of who makes my wine, you know, and to me, that's um, white privilege all day. You never had to think about that, you know, where you have this other demographic of folks who never, I use my kids as an analogy, until 2016, both of my kids, the only president they knew was Obama, mm -hmm. you know, after growing up 40-something years with white presidents, I never thought anything about, you know, me being a president or my family or my kids, but my kids can now. Why? Because they saw one person, you know, do it already. Um, and it goes back to that. We've all grown up with the word token being something negative. Um, but no, I'll be that token. You know, uh, it's just the coin. And I decide what value is put upon that. You know, so I, I want to be that one face, that one marquee, that, that one eye that someone sees. And you know what? Maybe I can do that too. Um, and the real humbling and surreal is uh, my emails. I get flooded monthly with emails from adults everywhere, you know, international, national, uh, saying they heard the story and how it inspires and empowers them, you know, and not just to make wine, but that they can do that too, you know, and I feel that um, the wine industry, especially Oregon, um, we could be like, tech was back in the day or you know uh, minorities in any industry you know that uh, we or that that portrayed the idea of we can't do this or this is not for us you know in that kind of wheelhouse um, and for me again real end goal if you if you think and so again some people might say well why so serious it's just wine um, 
Oregon has no next play. Oregon has done it all, right? You know, best uh, region for, um, what was it, best ADA, et cetera, you know, for region for Pinot Noir, you know, uh, was it one of the domains that just took top honors, best wine in France, you know, what else can we do? You know, what else can you do to, to take it to the next level in the wine industry? Um, I feel diversity is that is that angle. Why not? You know, Oregon could be that state that has the most women, the most, you know, diverse LGBT, most minorities, et cetera. You know, I think that should be the angle to, to take it. And then, again, the okie doke. You get people buy wines um, out of emotion. You know, how many more people could we add to this, you know, the numbers of purchasing wine because it just feels good as opposed to uh, I buy wine because I want to talk terroir and all this other bullshit you can Google, you know. Um, stop thinking about the what and start focusing on the who. I think we saw more, much more wine, you know, with that as opposed to, you know, our awards and accomplishments with best soil and et cetera. You know, so for me, that, I feel that that's Oregon's next direction. I would love to, to start to create that shift. So you got, the, you got red, white, and black finished. Correct. You've gotten it premiered. What's been the response from people who've seen it? Oh, it's been amazing. Um, I personally am tired of seeing it. I've seen it too many times. And, and part of that reason saying that, that's not me anymore. I shot that in 2015. You know, um, that uh, what's portrayed or the person that's portrayed is not me. Um, but everyone has been, I mean, arms wide open, everyone has appreciated and seen it and um, it makes you laugh at certain points. You know, again, it has all of those, you know, components. You know, our first uh, premiere public was at the Hollywood Theater, mm -hmm. you know, which was just fitting for it. You know, it, it's got this anarchy sort of rebel feel to it. People were yelling at the screen and cheering at points. You wouldn't do that at Regal, you know, <laughs> but um, it was amazing to see you know, we sold out the theater, 320 seats, whatever. These are people who paid their own money to come see this film. And, you know, the response was, it was surreal. And uh, we just did our second screening. Um, same thing, you know, it, each time I'm like, okay, this is a movie again, and this is my part, and da 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 da. You know, but then I started looking at the people and the head nodding and, the, you know, the way they're, you know, um, receiving it and then the posts we always do a Q&A and all of that um, it, it's been it's been amazing and then you know and our most recent screening was in Lake Oswego which um, if you think about Oregon's history you know when I came here in 99 I used to they used to call it Lake No Negro you know no one lived in Lake Oswego um, but uh, we're right there on uh, State Street at the Lake Theater they actually put it on the marquee and there was over I'd say 10, 12 people, you know, and these are older white folks, 40s, 50s, you know, that came just because it was on the marquee. Mm. You know, so again, I feel like, it's, it, to me, it's, again, it's like, wow. You know, just the fact, red, white, and black, minority winemakers in Oregon, and that shifts people. You know, it, it gives you kind of hope that the world ain't all fucked up, you know, and um, there are people that care about change, and they care about and they care about being intentional about how they, they live their lives. And um, 
the, the broken side of me that's never content. It is, it's a trip that this project that we did is creating all of this change. You know, like I said, it's still very surreal, you know, especially being in this moment, you know. But um, like since I, we decided to do the movie, um, I became a keynote speaker. You know, I travel nationally and I was doing that for three years. I've been doing that for three years with a minute and 30 second trailer. Yeah. So yeah, so you can imagine it's like, oh shit, it's done. You know, I'm like, I was lifting off the trailer. Like, it's coming guys, coming soon. But now it's done. So this is my transition to, to taking it again to the next level, you know, so. So what's, what is the next level? Do you have future plans for Red, White and Black or for the next project? So for Red, White and Black, um, it was self-funded. I funded it myself, so um, I'm a control freak at heart. But um, I've got nobody pushing me for distribution, you know. So the idea is to independent theaters all through Oregon, other cities, you know, and and trying to touch small groups of people, you know, one at a time, and you know, festivals as well. Excuse me, any film festivals we can get to, um, and before we even decide to Netflix, Hulu, whoever, you know, wants to come at it. Um, early on, when I started, the plan was this would be the pilot for other industries that you know underrepresented folks are out here doing. Interesting. You know, so that's kind of in the, the back. You know, Q, you know, that's sort of the, the business mind side of that. Um, and uh, for me, the next personal project is actually a book that I'm working on. Uh, it's called The Immigrant Hustle. You know, and it's kind of, I feel in a way the documentary failed in the sense of it introduced you to me, but it didn't really give you enough nuggets. You know, um, and then the book is going to now take me out of this collab, you know, into following, you know, Bertoni and where I go and what's next. And, and again, you know, it's simple, it sounds cliche, but just changing the world by changing the game. You know, I'm not a writer, I'm not, you know, but you know what, I'm gonna write a book. I'm gonna, I'm gonna ride this wave, you know, and, and trying to show folks, you know, and what kind of example would I be for my kids if I didn't keep moving and keep going on. Um, like I said, it's part of that never content mm -hmm. side of me, you know, the, the what's next is happening. What about the response from the Oregon wine industry to your movement, movie, everything? It, it's been interesting. Um, again, uh, early on, and it's my own not, I guess, connecting enough with the, I, I just felt the, the industry didn't care. Um, until I, I did a fireside chat with Deb Hatcher from ADC. Oh yeah. You know, and when I got asked about it, it's like, the hell am I going to be talking to ADC about? They're the largest. I'm the coolest. You know, what are we going to be talking about at this fireside chat? And then I met Deb, and she's such an amazing woman. Um, she showed me that you can be the largest winery big, et cetera, and still make a difference. They're a B Corp. You know, they care about their staff, their employees, their vineyard workers, you know, things like that. And that was my kind of wow for me, eye-opening. Like, okay, um, she can still be where she's at and still care, you know, as well and create change. And that was the other thing for me is I can only take red, white, and black in my movement a certain level, you know, because I don't have the street cred but the Deb Hatchers do. Mm -hmm. um, another surreal moment, I got an email from uh, David Adelsheim. 
Oh, yeah? Yeah, he wanted to meet. And, you know, again, I was like, what the fuck does David want to talk to me for? You know, what are we going to talk about? Um, and he's had this pivotal shift. Um, he came here, we, we were talking, and um, he got selected to go to Miami to uh, uh, receive the award for best region, mm -hmm. you know, in the world. And he said he was looking around the room and it was nothing but white men, you know, and it, it forced him to ask this question, why? You know, and, and, and people he, he physically asked, you know, well, you know, there was the excuses why, you know, well, and it just didn't sit right with him. You know, he's, he's known about, you know, what I'm doing. And um, he had invited me to um, uh, submit a, a, an application to be on the board. Oh, you know, really? The Oregon Wine Board, you know. So it was like, okay, you know, so change is happening. People are seeing what you're doing, you know, and for me now, this is my next direction to focus on in order to take red, white, and black to this next level so that, you know, and Deb Hatcher, David Adelsheim, two, you know, large names in the industry, the ones that matter, you know, are wanting to see this change and, and create some stuff. So um, I've got new confidence in, you know, uh, the Oregon industry uh, and obviously there's a lot of I think of my peers who just don't care mm -hmm. you know and that's all right you know those are not the ones I'm trying to change and I don't need their assistance either you know but the the Deb Hatchers the David Adelsheims you know and I'm sure uh, a few others are the ones that matter um uh, Gabby Keeler you know um uh, Kramer uh, Trudy Kramer mm -hmm. you know when I first started the documentary I, she sent me an email you know saying Hey, Bertone, I respect what you're doing. And I, they didn't have to do that. You know, so uh, that's very humbling, you know, for the guy who's like, fuck the industry, I'm just gonna do what I do, you know, and not follow tradition. And for them to still see the, the bigger picture, you know, of what I'm doing and how important it is. It, it's surreal, man, it is definitely surreal. So I, I definitely got some, uh, uh, what's the word, um, some new respect for the industry and, and it's, it's true pioneers in that sense. Good. So you talk about kind of the cliche of the, of the white male winemaker, but we also think of the sort of the cliche of the white wine drinker. Right. So have you had a response from the African-American community to you? Have you seen more? <laughs> I've got 600% increase in black wine drinkers <laughs> or, or at least coming to the winery and tasting room. Um, I just, it's every weekend I get people from out of town who came to Oregon. They knew they would come to Oregon. They had to come find me, whatever, because they seen, they heard, etc. Um, again, to them, it's it's this respect of wow, you doing you, you know, in this industry, you know, and they they truly appreciate, you know, having a place. Because again, and, and unfortunately, I don't know how the industry got there. But, you know, when you think about France, Italy, Spain, everybody talks about you go to these countries and people bring you into their basement and they just want to share their craft. You know, wine is not. But, but all of a sudden, where did the pretentious and the I'm better than you or, you know, I know wine so I can ask you, oh, have you been to France? And, you know, mm -hmm. it's all of this shit. Where did I come from? And unfortunately, that's when you ask anybody about the wine industry, that's the first thing that we think about is the exclusion of it. Um, so I, I'm that sort of the beacon for people to come and I, my whole goal is to make people of color you know and even the younger generation who feel like I can't go to wineries it's too snooty or I don't know how to act or dress um, comfortable in any scene with wine it's just wine 
You know, honestly, there's nothing special about it. You know, you can buy wine at the gas station. So the shit is not really fancy, is it? You know, so bringing that to me brings that down to, you know, a regular level for everybody to enjoy. The fact that people come in and, you know, it's a casual, you know, sort of scene. Um, there's R&B and hip hop playing. All of a sudden you can see their stress level goes down. You know, you've seen the people like, I don't want to come in here. You know, okay, terroir, clones. You know, they, they're going through the mantra of, of what they need to say or how they need to act. But at the end of the day, I think, I'm bringing more customers to the industry because of that. You know, now they feel like we can ask these questions, we can be comfortable, you know, ordering whatever at dinner just because, mm -hmm. you know, sort of feel. So yeah, no, we still are, are getting, you know, um, this population of, of people of color and minorities in general, you know, coming through just because if they heard the story, you know. <laughs> so I feel that, you know, we're increasing wine drinkers for everybody. Sure. You know, so that's, that's kind of the beauty there. That's awesome. You talk about the emails you've been receiving and the, and the feedback. Have you heard from other young black men who are talking about getting into winemaking now or something similar? No, definitely. Uh, there's um, a couple, there's a, a brother in uh, North Carolina. You know, he's got his, uh, he's got a little vineyard. You know, he's planting his, he's trying to do his thing. Uh, I've got a lot of intern requests, mm -hmm. you know, from uh, uh, young black men out there, you know, heard the story and they want to follow in my footsteps in that sense you know um, first thing i'm telling them is don't plant a vineyard you know <laughs> but <laughs> there's, there's it's again um, i'm getting all of these uh, emails and requests too you know how can they come for you know an intern or just just to bend my ear mm -hmm. you know about you know how did i get in and my starter which direction you know can they go um, but even again, that for me, it sounds like, yeah, I'm this great, courageous pioneer challenge. I had to own that. I had to, I had to have that switch to, okay, I am going to be the pioneer, the trailblazer. You know, because at the end of the day, no one wants to be judged or you don't want to be anybody's representative because everyone's watching you. You know, and then the first moment you fail, it's like, ah, I let everybody down, you know, kind of thing. So even for myself, I had to take that moment of, okay, I am going to own, you know, being that beacon for everybody else, you know, kind of thing, so. That's a big burden to take. Oh, you say yeah, if you yeah, fail. You know, it's like a superhero, right, you know? <laughs> <laughs> was it great power comes great responsibility. There you, go. you know, so yeah, no, indeed. Was there a point at which you felt you were good enough at what you were doing that that burden didn't feel quite so burdensome like that your wine was good enough that you were here yeah yeah no it, indeed and that was that same kind of okay I can I understood enough of what it takes to sell wine and make wine mm -hmm. and make you know good solid wine um, I'm sure you do all of these interviews and and winemakers that'll tell you they went and studied and they're making wine is easy all right, Mother Nature does it. You remove the variables where you can screw up and you make no excuse for it. This is what we got, you know. Um, but I got to that point by changing the customer, you know, as opposed to the customer. The first issue to me in the wine industry is, okay, what's your best? You know, I think the majority of, of wineries are always pitting one wine against the other. That's kind of the, the bullshit of the industry. Everything I make is amazing. You know, they're all just different, though. 
Okay, when you make the kazoo, you change the way the customer enjoys. You know, and again, it goes back to the sake. It's all about context. What am I doing? I've got a wine for every occasion. Now, all of a sudden, it allows you to enjoy more as opposed to getting stuck on this, I like this or I don't like that, or, you know. So for me, um, I'm at that position to, to change the way people drink wine, think about wine and things like that. And in that same sense, it took the burden off of having to make this perfect wine. There's no such thing. You know, I don't have to make a perfect wine. You know, I just got to make an unflawed wine, you know, at the end of the day. So, so you got all those other, all the other projects now and you talk about you're a hustler and you're, you're not sure. Are you planning on, is Abbey Creek a future thing for you? Are you thinking of something, doing something different? Do you have an idea what this looks like in 20 years? Um, Abbey Creek... Uh, for right now is definitely um, you know in the future you know this is year 10 um, so many people and again I think what what hurts vineyards wineries etc is the traditional business model and you got to keep growing and bigger and better um, you go to wineries and tasting rooms everyone loves to tell you how many cases they make no one tells you how many cases they sell. <laughs> All right, you know, I make 1,200 cases, I sell 1,200 cases, direct to customer, no middleman. Uh, so I kind of just found my lane. And as long as I could maintain this lane, and, and that also allows me to keep the integrity of who I am, how I do things, my way, etc. You know, so as long as I can maintain that, um, this is going to be around for, you know, as long as it needs to. Mm -hmm. You know, kind of in that idea. But uh, just like anything else I do, uh, after I get to whatever point of building, we'll call them customer base, but fans and people that follow you, I can do anything. You know, and it's just what's my next opportunity, you know, to where it goes. Um, I think the wine thing is really going to be, you know, here for quite a while because again of the platforms and the doors it opens you know I'm using that whole wine is fancy thing you know uh, to, to get me into places and then once I'm there then I'll let you know how cool and everyday regular you know person I am you know so so no I mean for me that's my that's my crowbar that's my you know that's what that's what's opening doors and then doing it but again another thing that now what I'm doing is I have a line of I call it wines for a cause mm -hmm. um, just like any business once you start um, you get nonprofits all over, all day everybody wants you to cut a check you know makes no damn sense to me and and the only currency they have is awareness mm -hmm. I've got enough awareness I don't need your awareness. I don't need my logo on your website to make me donate X amount of cases. So what I've been challenging folks is uh, buying in, partnering up. We do a 25 case minimum. We do a private label. They design the label and they do the promotion and marketing. Once that X amount sells, they get their 20% cut for doing that. So in the same sense, you know, we're helping awareness for other groups, other projects, um, doing bigger things mm -hmm. with just Abbey Creek, you know, instead of, because I could have made a 2015, right, but no, I made 25 cases of a 2015 Pinot for this group, mm -hmm. for that group, for the other. So again, I'm using wine as my tool, as my leverage to make the place better, to be able to, uh, to help others, you know. So yeah, it, like I said, it, it is, it's, it's my tool for, you know, for, for making, you know, my life for the people around me better, you know, as well. So yeah, no, it, it's always going to be sitting around in that. What's been the response to that, Wines for a Cause? And it's so funny when you see these uh, uh, nonprofits, when you, when you put the idea and they're like, 
that makes sense. You know, because again, unfortunately, no one ever challenges it, or you know, or I guess they just deal with the Nikes, the Intels who have, you know, they need the the subliminal, you know, images out there, so they just cut checks, you know. But it it, it forces people to to have some ownership about what they do, and on the back end, customer wise, that's the biggest scam in the world you know like, this is for the cause we're helping these you know crippled children here so you know it's like i'll buy that i'll buy that so now i'm selling wine again on top of that you know and then so again it, to me it's just it's too easy <laughs> it's just too easy you know at the end of the day but again i still get those good feelings we're helping others uh, it's it's making a difference while making a living you know, we, I don't need to be taking a loss in order to be, I don't need to be this martyr, you know, in, in order to help others, you know, and, and bring people up with me. So what are some of the, besides just pure size, what are some of the changes you've seen in the industry since you started? Uh, what, what are some of the biggest, like, transformations you've, you've noticed in the Oregon wine industry? Mm. Honestly, I, I haven't noticed much because still, I mean, not as what, 700 wineries now and, and growing. Um, I stopped going to, I stopped doing the shows. Mm -hmm. Newport or, you know, Portland Seafood, etc. That's not my customer. You know, that, that is not my model. Um, Unfortunately, I don't see the industry changing in the sense of progression. There's still people with small labels popping up, but they're still following, you know, the same silly model. You know, last year at Harvest, there was 100 tons of Pinot Noir in the valley available for sale. Hmm. You know, because, you know, what they do back in the day, buy, buy this property, plant the grapes, you know, you know, you needed that estate on your bottle, you know. But no, and you know, everyone is celebrating vineyards now. You know, Knudsen's and these and that. And um, so why are people still putting themselves in the hole because of this passion? You know, I love wine, so I'm going to go be broke like everybody else <laughs> loving wine. Uh, so I, I think the industry is stagnant. You know, the Oregon industry. Like I said earlier, what's our next step? We don't have one. You know, everyone's still trying to make this amazing Pinot Noir. Now what? You know, so I, I have not seen this transition yet, you know, of, of the Oregon wine industry um, becoming greater, per se. You know, where, what kind of, what would, what change would you like to see? What would, what would make you say that it's becoming greater? Um, I would love to see that more of the, the urban winery model. I guess so. If, if anything, growth that is happening now. Mm -hmm. That was, was that, I mean, because hip chicks were the first, right, mm -hmm. 15 years ago. <clears throat> but more of that model, I think, is more of a, a successful and, and making it, and that allows it also to not feel so much of as uh, exclusive. Because right now, if you feel, if I don't have a vineyard, I can't make wine, now what? You know, so more of that model, like the urban winery started popping up, the Carlton Winemaker Studio, where we are under one house. You buy your fruit, it's okay. You know, I know people who grow grapes but make shitty wine. You know, so yeah, having vineyards don't necessarily mean success. But I would love to, to have that being more of what's being, being pushed and marketed. Mm -hmm. You know, this collaborative, collective, as opposed to, you know, go get your vineyard and go do you, you know, over there and you'll be great. You know, now I seen a, a, 
um, Sterling Bank, I think. One, is it Sterling or Silver? One of the, one of the wine banks, mm -hmm. you know, that are in the magazines and everything. They had an article in the New York Times on, on how to be successful in the wine industry. You know, first you go get a loan from them, <laughs> and then you shop for property, you know, and then you get your fabled winemaker from France or wherever, you know, and you're into all these shows, you get medals, and then in 10 years, you can make $100 wine, and that's where the success comes from. That's just so broken, you know, so I think in that same extent, it's shooting itself in the foot, you know. What advice would you give someone who wanted to join the industry today? First of all, you know, just like anything, you kind of flesh out the why. You know, what part, you know, do you want in there? Um, but again, my biggest issue is the model. People either get vineyards, buy grapes, have this idea of, okay, this is how many morning cases I want to make, and then they try to get a winery or a tasting room to sell it. Mm -hmm. Go to another winery. Go to your winery, your favorite winery. You know, um, get to know the winemaker or the owners, etc., and buy a barrel. Buy two barrels, custom label, you know, start that route, get your street cred first, get your demand. Let your demand drive how you grow. You know, you go from buying one barrel, two barrel of bulk, then you go buy, I want a ton of grapes. Mm -hmm. I want two ton of your grapes. You know, start building it in as if you truly want to be successful and love wine and do all of that. You know, that would be my sort of roadmap, you know, into to getting into the industry. Don't let the passion blind you, <laughs> you know, because at the end of the day, you'll be sitting at home at night stressing because you're broke and you're arguing with your family because you, you can't make it in this bullshit industry, you know, and then that passion, you lose it, you know. And my, my um, other advice is just be you, you know, do you, own who you are, because ultimately that's what customers come back for, you know. There's amazing wine everywhere, you know, and you, you can't think that's what's going to be what's going to get customers, you know. What about a specific, do you have a specific advice for someone who identified as a minority? Would there be something different you'd tell them about getting into the industry? Uh, the, the same sort of roadmap, but definitely embrace whatever it is that, that makes you that minority. Um, again, I think we, we've shied away from being proud, everyone wants to be colorblind as opposed to color brave, you know, because uh, everyone tells you, you know, I, I don't see color, and yeah, you do, it, it's obvious, you know, you're full shit if you tell me you don't notice uh, someone's minority status, you know, that's not, but embrace who you are, what you are, you know, because again, that's what allows people to come in and connect you know, and to you, you know, people know I am Haitian American. We serve plantains for my palate cleanser because every time a customer comes in, oh, plantains, why? My family's from Haiti and da, da, da. I, I infuse that, you know, into my brand and this is what I do, you know, so for me, it's, it's embrace whatever part that makes you a minority, you know, so. So all the questions that I have for you. Is there anything I should have asked you? Anything else you want to mention? No, no, no. I'm, I'm kind of all over the place <laughs> and here, there, everywhere. But no, I think that the main gist, you know, um, we've got it covered. You know, so perfect. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. Oh, my pleasure. Always a pleasure to talk to you. No, no, it is great. <laughs> thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast, and thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org 
for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield College. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. And a special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.